take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been talking a lot about family. We've been talking about husbands and wives relationships. We've been starting a series on parenting. What is the role of a godly parent? What has God called us to do? How do you go about it? And this week we want to do something perhaps you've never ever heard a message on the subject. We would like to address grandparents. What happens? What happens when that proverbial baton is passed on to the next generation? When you have kids, those kids are grown up, they are sent out. What happens at this next stage of life when your home now becomes kind of your own and the kids are out kind of established places of their own? Now, do you just kind of kick back and like game over? We survived this. You know, it takes about seven years to recover and then you kind of move on and start doing some of the things that you've always dreamed about doing. Uh, do you just tune out of life? Is your purpose over? Is, is God done with you? Like you're just, that's it. All I needed you to do is kind of get these kids out and you're done. You're just kind of lay on your back, find your lawn chair and, and just coast for the rest of life. Is that, is that what we do? Um, I'd like to bring back your attention to the relay race. Remember we talked a lot about it last week, about a relay race. And I want to encourage you to watch a relay race sometime. Now, we've talked about the exchange, that exchange zone, like if in uh, the 4 by 100, you got that 100, you got that 20 meters to get that baton there. And, and we talked about the exchange and how critical that is for parents to make that investment in their children when they've got them for that 18 to 20 year window and they got them at home and there's significant influence that's going on there. But what happens after the exchange is made? Well, something that you don't perhaps usually watch the relay race, this is what I want you to watch. I want you to watch to the individual who has actually passed on the baton and their leg of the race is over. I was, you know, there's some different scenes. Uh, the Olympics this past summer gave you some scenes where they actually would give shots of the people who had actually finished their part of the race. And what, what do you see when you, someone has actually finished their leg? Why, they are totally into it. You know, what happens is it's kind of like their role changes. They actually, after they've made the exchange or they touch bases, they become like the major cheerleader, like a coach. Or if you're an Aggie, you become a yell leader. Okay, I know that I have to translate for some of the Aggies here. That you you get into it. You do not, you never see after a relay exchange where they just walk off and like they could care less and they just kind of go in the locker room. No, they are totally into it because why? They poured everything they had out onto that track or into that pool And now they are going to cheer with everything they have for the next individual that's that's actually got that leg. And so kind of take that in mind, because once that exchange has taken place in your home, your race changes in a sense that you are not you're not going to be parenting them like you were when you had them. But your role is just as critical. You might want to think of it this way. Our roles change, but our goals change. Do not. The goal of running a relay race, to win. That you and every individual on your team compete at the very best of your ability. And you cheer and you coach and you yell and you scream and you jump up and down and you wave your arms because you want that next person to give it all they have to fulfill their purposes in that leg. You know, that same is true in parenting. When you become like a grandparent. When your kids move out and perhaps they have kids on your own, your role changes, but the goals never do. And what is the goal? 
Let me just remind you from last week. But this is really the goal of what God is seeking to accomplish in each one of his children. And that is that you and I become complete in Christ. If you are a grandparent and you're like, well, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What's my goal for my children now they're at home or my grandchildren? Your goal is the same as when they were in your home, that they become complete mature in Christ. In Ephesians 6, 4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You want your kids to continue to mature in the discipline, the training that comes from God and his teaching, his instruction. And that's what you want for your grandkids. You see, what happens is it's like you're Your role changes, but you've actually broadened your field of influence. Now you actually have another generation to have influence on. And so that's what you seek to do. That's like Paul said in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It doesn't matter how old you are or who you are. He says in 128, he says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It is for this purpose I labor and strive according to his power, which works mightily within me. That is the purpose. God wants you and I to mature in the faith. Somewhere along the line, we have gotten satisfied with status quo, inch deep Christianity. And God is never satisfied with that. All that is true of us positionally, we're justified by faith. We are declared righteous. Heaven is secure. God wants us to experience, to grow in maturity and holiness and depth. And that is the goal of the Christian life. And that is, that is the role that you have as a parent and as a grandparent. But there is a huge looming question. And that is, well, how in the world do you do that? How in the world are you involved in helping another generation or your grandkids come to a point of maturity? And I'd like to put it to you in a very simple statement. The legacy we leave comes from the priorities and perspectives that we keep. The legacy that we leave comes from the priorities and the perspective we keep. And your passion that you had as parents to see your kids become complete in every area, physically, emotionally, socially, intellectually, spiritually, that is your same goal for your grandkids. That's what you're wanting to do. You see, grandparents are still running the race. What's happened, though, is their sphere of influence has increased. Remember, remember in the book of Titus, Titus has only got three chapters. And the purpose of that book is that Paul commissioned this key guy, Titus, to go to the island of Crete, where life was just a little chaotic and, and random and crazy. And the, he wanted them to establish healthy churches. How do you have a healthy church? Well, you've got to have healthy leaders. And so in chapter two, one, he talks about elders. He says, you look for these kind of guys. They have these kind of characteristics. They are men of integrity, godliness, character, character, and they have a particular trait. They are able to teach because teaching influences lives. That's chapter one. In chapter two, he says, he starts addressing the infrastructure of the church. And you know what he says? He says, I want you to help ground the older people. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And chapter 2, verse 2, in the book of Titus, he says this, Older men, first guys you want to go after, establish older men. They are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. You want to encourage these older men to develop. 
because they have a key role. After he addresses older men, he then goes with older women. He says older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And in the next verse is the hinge. There is a purpose why these older people are to be maturing in the faith, because God has a key role in the, in the life of the church, what they're to do. They are to, verse 4, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Older people are to have significant influence in the lives of younger people so that the word of God and the God of the word are not dishonored. When you have a health, you know what a healthy church looks like? When you have older people who are continually maturing and establishing themselves in the faith, who in return see their importance in the livelihood of the church and encourage the younger generation to do the same. That is a healthy church. That is a healthy family. And grandparents, older people, people who are in the second half of your life, let me just tell you, you are the future of the church. What? No, it's the young people. The young people are all the future, right? If I'm reading my Bible correctly, you're the future. Because you set the tone, the example, the pace, the level, the bar, the standard, the pursuit. And younger people are to follow in your footsteps. You are not set on a shelf. God is not done with you. In fact, your greatest role happens in the second half of life. You are going to set the pace for the next generation. If you thought, oh, good, I'm done. Actually, your greatest role has just come upon you. Now, you may... Uh, you may feel like, whoa, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there in age. I don't have the energy like I once did. I, 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 frankly, it's, it's just more difficult. I mean, age has kept up with me. My body is kind of falling apart. I'm being renewed in the inward person. But you need to know that it's not so much that you're doing something as you're becoming something. That you continue to grow and mature in the faith. And your influence is great among all those who you are related to by blood. Your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. But let me also tell you this. Your influence, if you're older, is great to those who are related to you by the blood of Christ. See, all of us who are in the family of God, we need you. We need your influence in our life. You model for us what it means to walk with God, the perseverance of the saints. What it means to love, to forgive, to stay firm in your commitments. What it means to walk with Christ in the good times and the bad. We need to learn the lessons that are kept in your heart, the experiences that you have had. And that is what Titus is is supposed to do. You go find those older people and tell them. You start with them. You are the future of the church because successive generations are going to walk in your footsteps. Now, what if... uh, what if you don't actually like the past, the legacy that you have been leaving? What if, what if you feel like you have completely blown it in some areas? What if you feel like, i got a checkered past. I don't think there's anybody that really should be following in my ways or going in my footsteps. And if the truth be known, they would want nothing to do with me. What do you do? 
if you feel like you feel like you'd like to leave behind the past, but it seems to be so much indicative of, of just who you are and you can't seem to escape it, I want to tell you something. By the grace of God, you can change. Many of you um, are familiar with the word Nobel, right? Actually, that's the last name of a guy by the name of Alfred Nobel. He, in 1867, he actually came up with this new high explosive. It was, it was ultra powerful. Nothing like it had ever been invented before. And he called it dynamite. And he was convinced that his invention of dynamite would make war too horrible to ever happen again. That because he had created something so powerful, so destructive, that war would never happen again. But on the contrary, he found that there was a massive market for dynamite. He made a huge fortune from the sales, and yet he was horrified when he saw the suffering and the misery it caused in wars and conflicts. Now, towards the end of his life in the 19th century, he woke up one morning, picked up the newspaper, started reading, and discovered that he had died. How was that for the morning news? Whoa. And he read this. Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before. He died a very rich man. Now, what had happened is that the reporter had actually confused him with his older brother, who had actually died the day before. But that one mistake, him reading his own epitaph, it convinced him, I must change. I do not want to be remembered as a, one, as a person who developed a very efficient means of killing a lot of people and amassing, and amassing a fortune in doing it. And so with that, he initiated the Nobel Prize. It was awarded to scientists and writers who foster peace. And when he died, he left the large bulk portion of his estate to continue to fund this prize, and it exists to this day. Because he said this, quote, every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. And so I want you to I want to tell you something. Today can be the new day. You can leave the past in the past and what you do in the present is going to influence the future. You know what Paul's perspective was on this? Paul's perspective in, in Philippians 3.13, he said this. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, this idea of completeness and maturity. He said, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus. I leave the past and the past I set my sights on Christ and I move forward. This is the gospel of grace, friends. Your past, my past, we don't want to be talking about that. We are all major sinners, aren't we? We need a savior. We need someone who will forgive us, wash us clean, give us new hope, change us from the inside out, transform us. And you know what? God is able to do that, and he does so through the person of Jesus Christ. You believe him, you trust in him, you cling to him, you ask for forgiveness, you turn from your sin, you hold on to Christ. Not only do you experience forgiveness, you experience the new life 
that only he can provide. Let me just tell you something. Jesus Christ has a long history of changing people's hearts and their lives, no matter what their age. And I think that we could have a lot of people stand up today and say, Amen. You know, the most important part of the race, don't you? Don't you, you want to, the most important part of the race is the finish, right? You can have kind of a bad start. I've seen them. I've experienced it firsthand. But you know what the most important part of the race is how you finish. And you who are in the second half of your life, you who are grandparents, the time is now. The best years have arrived. The day of opportunity is at hand. Now, I want to, I feel like I've got to give you a, a sobering caution. If you look at the Bible and you look at men and women and, you kind of, and the ones that are kind of traced and their patterns and what they did and their significance, uh, there's something that uh, is very troubling. Howard Hendricks actually did a study where he looked at 100 men in the Bible and he discovered that only one third of them finished well. He discovered that those who tanked, those who kind of blew up their life, they actually did it. And the second half of life, we think, oh, they made the mistakes when they're young. Actually, if you look at these different individuals, they made their critical mistakes when they got older. Noah, God used the man significantly, a man of tremendous faith, took all sorts of heat, did things that people just called him foolish, stood for God when everybody else was capitulating to the culture. But, you know, it's kind of like after these great triumphs, that's when he just gives himself to drunkenness. When you look at David, look how God used the man so significantly. Slaying a giant, writing the Psalms, king of Israel, bringing Israel to dominance, a heart for God, and yet, in the second half, adultery, accompanied by getting that man's, that, that wife's man killed in a battle. You look at Solomon, you know, you can be the wisest man in the world, Give, have even God given wisdom. But if you don't give yourself to God and to the wisdom that he has given you, you can be like Solomon and you can flirt with all kinds of theories and false religions of the world. And the scriptures record the the sad testimony of a guy like Solomon who did just that. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, quote, as we grow older, we're confronted with temptations that we've shunned in youth but that now look very attractive, cutting corners, eliminating disciplines, lowering standards. As Paul told Titus, you get those older folks, older men, older women, and you say, it is not to be for you. Your greatest hour has arrived. Football game has four quarters. A school term has those final exams. A home that is built always needs a finishing carpenter for those final touches. Life has a final season. And you know, you'll probably be remembered on how you finished your life more than how you started it. Because the finish is more important than the start. So what you need is you need a plan, a plan to succeed a plan to continue to grow in godliness, that the fires of walking with God are not only lit, but they're burning and they continue to rise so that you can be a person of influence. 
And, you know, if you want to see what this looks like, all you have to do is look at the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, would be a guy who really actually was God used significantly in the second half of life. His perspective was this. In Acts 20, verse 24, when he's giving an address to the Ephesians elders, listen to what he said. He says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I want to finish my course. You see, when you're running a race, if you run anything like a a 5K or a 10K or a half marathon or a marathon, you know, there is a strong temptation to just give up. You know, like you're running along and you get into the race and you're tired and you're dehydrated and you actually see maybe people that just do give up. You know, I've I've seen people just kind of like dive into a ditch because that was a better alternative than continually taking the next steps. And it it plays mind games with you. It's all up here. It's, It's mental to stay in the game. Yes, your body's hurting, but it's your mindset. No, I am going to finish what I've completed. I have a course to run. I'm going to stay in it. God, by his grace, will enable you to do it. But you must have the mindset that I am going to continue moving forward. Yes, life is hard. It is painful. As you go on the race, yes, your body breaks down. It's hard. It's difficult. And yet God, by his grace, enables you to move forward. We got to have the mindset like Paul. I want to finish my course. If you want to see what he's looking forward to, he had a long-term, Christ-centered, heaven-oriented perspective to his life. And if you want to see what it looks like, and Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he says this, For I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I'm setting my hope, my future, in God's hands. The Bible highlights all sorts of people who made their greatest contribution in the second half. Look at Moses. He didn't have too pretty of a beginning, huh? Did he? Killed a guy, you know, trying to break up another fight, got run out of Egypt, you know? God actually started his most significant work in Moses' life at age, anybody know? 80. If you're not at 80 yet, You're going to need to know that God may just be getting ready for his greatest work at age 80. I'd get training. You know what I'm saying? But think of the others. There's Joseph, Ruth, Enoch, Elijah, Priscilla, Aquila, John, Paul, Peter, James. All of these experienced God's greatest work in their life in the second half. You see, older Christians are to model what the next generation is to become. And you might be going, oh, man, I'm doing good just to hang on. Do you know that God is at work in you? both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You on yourself and your own efforts, you can do nothing. See, that's the message of Jesus. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. He says, but I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you want to have influence for Christ in your generation, on the future generations? We have to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can make the most of the present when we're looking forward to the future. And so what I want you to hear, I want you to hear one generation calling out to the generation that is now 
ahead. And that is this. We need you. We need you. We need your encouragement. Younger people need the encouragement of those who have gone before. We need to hear from you, to talk with you, when possible, for you to share the stories of the past. We need the wisdom that you have. Now, you're going, ooh, how do I even open up the door of communication? I, you might be older and you're going, I look at the young people and I don't even know if they want to talk with me. And, and I, don't, I don't really know them. And, and how would you even open up the door? Let me just give you the key. It's not as locked as you think it is. The key of relationships is love. L-O-V-E. You show love. You smile. You engage. You're going to be able to start to talk and develop those kind of relationships. You know, what you want to do is you want to be making memories. If you're a grandparent, you want to be making memories with your grandkids. Anything from having dinner with them to going camping, maybe a phone call, when possible, be able to see them. If you're really high-tech... You're a high-tech grandparent. You can Skype, okay? And if you don't know what that means, ask a younger person today, and they'll actually tell you what this is. But, you know, I, I was just thinking back to my grandparents. All of them have now passed on. But I have such great memories of my grandparents, memories of, of being on the farm. Like my brother and I, this was not a safe thing to do, and probably don't do this to your grandkids, but my, my grandfather would take us out, and we'd be out on the field checking on the cows, and we'd ride on the tailgate of the truck, Right? And my brother and I, you know, he's going slow, and we'd push each other off, right? My grandfather, you know, he could see us in the rearview mirror. And so, you know, like my brother goes sailing. I don't know how that happened. And, and then he, he'd have to run and chase and get back on that truck, you know. And we're just spending time together. And I could just see my grandfather smiling as we're pushing each other off. I remember singing songs with my grandmothers. I mean, I remember one time my grandparents took me to Chicago. Just me, not my other three younger brothers, just me, for a family wedding. It was it was awesome just to spend time with them, to talk with them. We were spending so much time and talking. My, gr- my grandfather was allowing me to drive his massive Oldsmobile. I mean, this thing was a boat. And, you know, you just touched the accelerator and you were cruising. Well, I must have been going pretty fast because the very first time I ever got pulled over by a highway patrolman was with my uh, grandparents in the car. And I'm driving my grandfather's car. And he had apparently been pursuing me for some time. And uh, he uh, came up to the side there. And, you know, here's this young kid, you know. And he goes, son, do you happen to know how fast you're going? Uh, no. And, you know, and he kind of told me that I'd gone way faster than the speed limit. And my grandfather just said this. Well, I'll keep an eye on him. And that highway patrolman didn't give me a ticket. Praise the Lord. I did much better. I did much better than my brother, who was a little bit younger than me, who got his first ticket one week after getting his license. But, I mean, it was just engagement. Just my grandparents engaging me and making it a priority, and it was an effort. They had to drive over 500 miles to come and see me and my brothers and my family, but they engaged. You know, let let me tell you something else that we need. We need not only your engagement, we need your example. We need an example of what faithfulness looks like. How to do things right. What does wisdom look like for the long haul? What does the perseverance of the saints really look like? What does that look like? What, how to love? How to walk with God? How to do things that are, are correct and honorable? How to love our children? How to forgive? How to forget? We need the example. And who's going to provide it? The young people? Sometimes, but really we're going to be looking at the senior saints. 
You know, when Paul was looking for a real good example to encourage uh, his pastor friend, Timothy, you know who he looked at, don't you? He looked at his grandmother and his mother. In fact, you can find it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith which is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Sincere, that Greek word is a nupokritos. It means unhypocritical, unfeigning, not acting. Your grandmother was the real thing. So was your mother. And I know that you are the real thing too. I want you to look at their example. Be like them. You know, that's what we need to do. And there's so much learning that can take place from grandparents showing a younger generation like their grandchildren or older saints in the church helping younger ones. I I learned a ton of things from my grandfathers. I learned how to drive at a very early age because of the great privileges my grandfather gave me when my mother wasn't looking out on the farm. You know, I mean, you know, he must he was a patient man putting up with all those close calls, hitting almost hitting fences and going off the road and all that stuff. I learned I I remember when I had to learn how to drive on a hill and how to start and stop on a hill. I knew that my dad was not the right person to teach me. Okay, I knew that my grandfather was. And so I remember asking, hey, I need to learn this. Would you come and help me? And he did. You know, there's older saints in the church that we learn from, like Dr. Pentecost, who's been here on several occasions. Last summer, I had the privilege of being out in Colorado and going to his cabin and spending some time with Dr. Pentecost, age 93. I mean, this man is kind of like the scholar. He's such a godly man. He's so sharp. He's walked with God for these many years. And so I asked him this question. I said, hey, Dr. Pentecost, have you found God to always be faithful Always be faithful in your life, even in the hard times. Because I need to know, as a young guy, can I really expect God to be faithful in every circumstance that I face? And he said, yes. And then he told me some stories that I'm sure are not publicly known of some of the major difficulties that he went through in his life and how God provided and saw him through. I cannot tell you how much that meant to me to hear from an older saint just on the faithfulness of God. We need your engagement. We need your example. And we need your encouragement. We just need to hear from the people who've gone before us. We're for you. We're proud of you. You know, as a grandparent, you have significant inroads. You've got to got like a free pass. You can say things and get away with things that a lot of people can't. And your grandkids, the younger generation, we need to hear just a few words of encouragement from you. It means everything. So you just ask questions. Kind of like, what was, tell me about that experience. What was that trip like? Tell me again how you hit that ball and it was sitting on the tee. You know, just engage them. Encourage them. You need to encourage that God is good. That he can be trusted. That he's faithful. That he's holy. That he's in control. There was a guy in our church who recently told me about his grandfather and what a significant man he was. He told me that his grandfather prayed for him every single day. And after he got married, when he and his wife would visit his grandparents, that his grandparents would invite them to share in the devotional that they had every single night. I tell you what kind of lasting influence he told me I want to be like him. I remember the... There's only one time that my grandparents actually ever heard me speak or preach. Uh, it was a significant Sunday. In fact, it happened right here. It was on a Mother's Day. My, my dad's parents and my mother were here. I, I acknowledged them. It was, it was the first time that that had ever happened. 
It was the only time. Now, me being a pastor is not my family's favorite subject. And someday, or if you come to a membership class, I'll share with you my testimony. But when I finished, I actually went down there and and no one really said anything. Except my grandfather. He looked me in the eye. He said, well, that was a pretty good sermon, boy. And I'll tell you, that meant everything to me. That my grandfather would affirm me. Because I have been out there for some time. Me being a Christian is not very popular. But to hear those words from my grandfather, I thanked him. I even wrote him a note to thank him again. Because we need the voice of the generations before us in our lives. Now, you're thinking, well, what can I do? I've given you some examples of what you can do even in your grandkids' lives. But you see, there's so many of us in the body of Christ we need the older generation. I mean, last, did you see all the kids we had up here? Like a hundred, couple hundred kids and their workers up here. You can actually invest in a children's ministry. And just maybe even once a month, go and invest in that younger generation. You could adopt a leader or a family. Or you could support a single. You could, but if you take the initiative and make the effort, you could actually have significant influence. Now, you know, I've been talking a lot about the older generation. But let me just tell all of us who are younger. You're going, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. Them come and encourage us and give us an example and engage us. We like that. They're going to take care of us. Uh, You need to take the initiative with them. A lot of the older folks, they actually may feel intimidated by you and all your high energy. They, uh, They actually may feel very lonely. They need you to take the initiative to go and greet them in the foyer or in the parking lot and say, hey, could you tell me your name? I know we've been going to the same church for some time, but I don't think I know you. And this is my family or this is this is my boy. I'd like you to meet them. We need to engage each other. We're the body of Christ. We're united, interlocked, and we're only as strong as the bonds that keep us. And Christ has brought about unity, but he wants it to be real and we've got to engage. So, you know, we need to give the same things that we're looking for. Examples, encouragement, engagement. And so you, you find an older person, you invite them. What if you invited their, to your home or go get donuts after church? And you need to encourage and affirm them. Some of them feel very lonely. And you need to realize this. You're young and you think you're invincible and you'll always be young. I got news for you. You're one day going to be old. And you one day will be in their shoes. And it is coming quicker than you think. And so what we need to do is we need to honor the God of the word and the word of God and engage each other deeply. We need you, the older generation. I've thought a lot about you. I pray for you. I am amazed at all that you have seen in your lifetime. All the changes that have taken place and how we live and in this society, even the changes in the church. But you are faithful and we respect you. We love you. And we need you. You see, the legacy we leave comes from the priorities and the perspective that we keep. And we need your significant legacy in our life. You know, the impressions that we leave can have a lasting influence. And at this time. I would like to invite Stuart Sanders to join me here. Uh, I think many of you know Stuart Sanders. He was part of our high school group. He is the son, oldest son of Shane and Janet Sanders. He graduated from Texas Christian Academy in 2004, and then he went on to Texas A&M and graduated from there. He has been married one year to his wife, Anna. They just had their one-year anniversary. 
He has been teaching and coaching at Brazos Christian School in College Station. And he, uh, a few months ago, paid a tribute to his grandfather after he passed away. It was memorable. I, I heard about it shortly after it took place. I would like you to listen to this. And as you do, consider the legacy that God would have you leave. Stuart, thank you. Uh, this, is a, this is a speech I gave at my grandfather's funeral about two months ago. Uh, just to give a little background on my grandfather, because a lot of the stuff in here is it's assumed that you would know about it, but you're a different crowd. So, uh, His name was Henry Truett Torgerson. He grew up in Beeville, Texas, down south, and he lived in Marlin. I always knew him as living in Marlin and working there. And, and uh, his name, like I said, was Henry Truett Torgerson, but we just called him Pawpaw. So you'll hear that throughout the, uh, throughout the, the speech that his name was that. He was a valiant soldier, a natural teacher, a gifted carpenter, and a caring husband, a loving father, and a disciple of Christ. And when I was thinking of ways to describe my grandfather, I just, the words that seemed to kind of fit him were extraordinarily normal. Uh, this means that in his life, Papa did things that we all view as really extraordinary, but to him they were normal. To him they were commonplace things that just anybody would do. To him it was normal to marry one woman for life, and to stay faithful to her, dying to his needs and wants and caring only about hers. To him, it was normal to have kids and raise them under the precepts of God in a house founded upon selfless love and loving discipline. To him, it was normal to work hard at your job, doing the best you can to honor your employer, your patron, and most importantly, your God. To him, it was normal to live and work with integrity, doing the right job no matter how long it took always being honest and forthright with everyone that he came into contact with. To him, he did the right thing because it was the right thing to do, not because he would get anything for it or any accolades or, or uh, honor, but just simply because it was the right thing to do. To him, it was normal to go to war when your country needs you, and it was also normal to have a horrifically miserable experience, and yet he saw no need to complain about it because that's what everybody had to deal with. To him, it was normal to live your life for other people, not investing in worldly goods, but in people, not in things that we can touch and see. The things we label as heroic. Accolades or any draw on any, any unnecessary attention to himself. But he minded his own business, but he still cared and remembered specific details about people, like how's your... How's your mom doing? Or how's your, I heard your car broke down. He would remember things like that. But he, he kept to him, he minded his own business. He wasn't meddling in the affairs of others. And he never met a stranger, and he could crack jokes with anyone. After he met you one time, he was already making fun of you or joking around with you or just kidding you. And, and he always made you feel welcome, especially because the things that he did, teaching and being a carpenter, had to do a lot with people, all with people. And he never wanted to be a burden to anyone, so he made sure that him and his family were both taken care of by the hard work that he did while he was alive on the earth. The second verse that uh, I thought characterized his life well was Colossians 3, 23-24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Christ, Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, Paul Paul put his entire effort into everything that he did, whether it was fixing my baseball glove for the thousandth time or building a, a slingshot for my brother Daniel or refinishing the headboard that we put stickers all over. It made my mom mad. <laughs> but, uh, or going to war. He did it all for the Lord and not for men. And you can tell that because uh, the way he went about a task, he worked under a higher standard. 
he didn't, and then the, his skill set as a carpenter was so unique and so specific that even if he did a half-hearted job, we, nobody would ever t- be able to tell because he's the only one that could do what he could do anyways. But that wasn't good enough for him, and he would spend extra long and an extra amount of time finishing that thing just so it would be as good as he could possibly do, not good enough to last. He served Christ in the loving of his wife and the raising of his kid and whatever employment he happened to be involved in throughout his life. And the third verse that I had was Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. To me, this sums him up the best. And he, he did everything for other people. He was a teacher, which is doing something for somebody else for very little pay. He was a carpenter fixing things that people broke all the time, antique furniture. He did everything for somebody else. He was the epitome of selflessness. A selfish man would not go to war, volunteer to go to war, knowing that death was certain, almost certain. A selfish man would not volunteer to go back to the front lines while he's suffering from hepatitis in an Italian war hospital. A selfish man would not put the needs and wants of his family and kids above his own for his entire life. I don't think I ever saw him buy or hear, heard him buy of anything for himself. But he bought me stuff all the time and my mom's stuff and he gave us furniture. I, I have furniture in my house now that he restored and, and helped us fix. Indeed, my grandfather was not a selfish man. He was truly a man who considered others as more important than himself. This is evidence in the fact that he, I mean, he, he took forever to, for him to retire from refinishing furniture because somebody would always go, hey, I just got one more thing. I just got one more piece. Just one more. And he, he'd just say, come on, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he, he worked well, well into his retirement just because he, he couldn't say no. Like he, he wanted to help people. And he, even though he was within his right to say, no, I'm done with that. Go see this guy. He knew they came to him for a reason and he wanted to, to do what they needed to do because he, cared, he, he knew that they were more important than he was. And I believe he had this attitude in his life because he saw it in Jesus Christ and what he read in the Bible. Uh, the last thing that I noticed about my grandfather, throughout my whole life, he always prayed the same way. He closed his prayers the same way. And I used to think it was just, ah, he's just old, he's in a ritual, he's just been doing his whole life, is what they say. But, you know, when I got older and I started thinking about what he would say, because he was still saying it, uh, it, it just kind of started to click that it wasn't ritual, that it was something that he said purposely every time as he closed a prayer for a meal or for uh, the opening of an event or something. And he'd always say, at the end, he would say, Father, guide, guard, and direct us. And when I broke that apart and started thinking about it, I thought about a guide. A guide is someone who walks alongside another, who's, who's there in it with that person. So he wanted, he wanted God to, to guide him and his family, being there side to side. Who has a, little, a guide has a little more knowledge than the person who he's guiding, but he's still in it with them. And a guard... Is, uh, he knew that God could protect us. He wanted God, God to take it over us. He's overseeing it all, and he knows it all. And he acknowledges this every time he prayed, like, God, you're in control. You have everything going. For, you know, protect us. Guard us. And then direct us was, I always thought that, that guide and direct was kind of the same thing. But when you think about it, it's really not. Uh, somebody who guides is within the, the same circumstances going alongside. But a, somebody who's directing knows absolute truth, and they are above the situation. And he wanted, he prayed that God would direct us. He could see all the pitfalls coming. He could see the opportunities coming to, to grasp onto. 
And, and that's what Paul Paul prayed. He said, God, I know your way is right. And I know your way is not always easy. He never prayed for the easy way. He never did anything the easy way. But he never said, God, help us to be an easy breeze life. Let me coast on through. He said, no, direct me. Even if that's through, right through the thick of the forest, that's where I want to go. And, and he prayed that every meal for our lives. And every time he prayed for any closing of anything, opening for church, he was a deacon at his church. Uh, and I, I think we would all do well to, to note that and apply it in our lives, just the way that they pray and the way he thought about God and the impact that it had on me, just repeating that over and over and over. You know, when you're 5, 6, 7, and 8, it doesn't mean anything, but when he's still doing it when you're 19, 20, 21, I mean, it starts to really sink in that this is something important that he valued a lot. Um, now, when, when Paul Paul died, we all, we all knew that, that he had that salvation, and we knew that, that he rested in that salvation because you could tell he didn't, he didn't worry about a lot of stuff. He didn't worry about putting his three kids through college on a teacher's salary. He didn't worry about uh, his health. He didn't worry about any of that stuff. He, he rested in that salvation. So when he did pass on, he, he had that faith. He had that. And we all knew that, too. We could all you know for sure. We know where he is because of the life that he lived. Um, and a few months before, he, he passed on me, or my wife and I. My granny would kill me if she heard me say me and Anna. Anna and I... She said, we were there, we were at her house, and he was at the hospital about to come home later on that day, and Ann and I were driving through on our way back to College Station, and we stopped at her house, and we were just helping her do some things, and uh, in, in typical granny fashion, we can't leave her house until we sat down and had some dessert and a beverage and talked for a little bit. So as we were going to do that, I took my plate and uh, drink, and we were going to the, to the table, and I, and I saw on this little kitchen table uh, an old leather book. I was there, and that kind of stuff interests me, so I pick it up, and it was Pawpaw's Bible. Um, and the binding was splitting. The leather was cracked and worn on it. It was so old. And you, you open it up, and you could see the finger grease on the inside of the pages from where he'd been turning it, and verses that were underlined, notes that were in the margin that he had written down and thought were important. And uh, when I saw that, and I, I knew that he did everything with his hands, and so this Bible got all the grease from everything, he, it just made sense to me to think about uh, when the binding in the pages of a man's Bible are more worn than the tools of his livelihood, you can trust that that was a man who lived with his priorities in line. And my grandfather, Henry Chewett Torgerson, did just that. Thanks. Thank you, man. That's awesome. Thank you, Stuart, so much for sharing that. And so we'll close with this. Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 8. It says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that you have brought us to a point in our study of this book of Ephesians where we as a congregation could look at the critical role of those who are living out the second half of their life. Taking a look at the influence of senior saints, of grandparents, and all that you are seeking to accomplish through their lives their examples, their engagement, their willingness to encourage. 
So, Father, I pray right now for the many who find themselves in that situation. That this would be their hour of renewal. A new course for some, perhaps leaving the past in the past and moving forward in a completely new direction as they walk with the Savior. And Lord, would you continue to bear much fruit through every life. And I pray that our families and our church family would be all that you seek us to be. We ask this, Lord. We ask, Lord, that we would experience your grace and goodness in our life. So, Lord, would you guide us? Would you guard us? And would you direct us? In Jesus' name we pray.